Good morning again to everyone. It is wonderful to see all. We have a fantastic crowd. We have so many visitors, and that's always a joy to get to either see and meet new people or to see those uh, that we know from other places. And so thank you to everyone for being here. It is wonderful to be together with you. I hope that the lesson I have for this morning is something that will be helpful for each and every one of us. I'm sure most of you are probably aware by now that something quite large and fairly momentous took place in our country this past week. On Friday morning, a ruling that has been expected for some time now because of a leak earlier this year uh, and a specific decision, the Supreme Court in our country overruled um, the ruling from 1973 of Roe v. Wade, uh, essentially changing what has been established and practiced law in our country concerning abortion for a half a century. And I try not to watch too much news or read too much news. That's a rabbit trail that if I start going down, I find myself reading too much and watching too much and getting too worried about and vexed about. And so it was a challenge this weekend, and I kept up with some of the stories and news articles going on. And so this topic has been on my mind quite a bit the past few days. And with that ruling and the discussions that have come about over the weekend, and I'm sure are going to continue for the days and the weeks and the months ahead, especially in an election year like we are, we're going to hear much more about the topic of abortion. And since we have kind of wrapped up our moral issue series, we did some teaching on moral issues on Sunday nights. Uh, when I first came up with that list, one of the topics I had on there for us to choose from was abortion, and we didn't cover that in this go-round, and so I'm just going to go ahead and cover that now. It kind of fits with the series that we just completed. Hopefully, it's something that fits with the times that we find ourselves in, but as we see this in the news, as we hear about this in school, as people talk about it, as people just live their lives, the truth is in our society, in our culture, abortion is a real issue that has been and is going to continue to be debated and discussed. It's a very emotional topic, um, but it's a very important topic. Now, I'm assuming that most, if not all, of those who are here this morning, we probably all have a very similar view. I hope so. But we need to be prepared to live out our faith. We need to be prepared to share our faith and to help and serve others to see the light of the gospel. And so I hope that this lesson this morning helps us with that. I want to say, um, again, I don't want to get very political. I don't think that's our role as Christians. I will say, however, that I think this recent Supreme Court ruling is a reason to rejoice and I do think that it is a reason to be thankful, to express thanks to God that the law in our land has changed, at least somewhat, based upon this recent ruling. We're told in Romans chapter 13 that the government, the civil authority, has a job that has been given them by God. Now, civil authorities don't always perform their role as servants and ministers of God, but in Romans chapter 13, Paul says that the authority, that is the civil authority, is God's servant for your good. He says, if you do wrong, you should be afraid. The government does not bear the sword in vain. Paul also says that as the servant of God, it is civil authority that is to be the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So one of the things that authorities are supposed to do is protect the innocent of their society. That is one of the jobs of civil government. Again, not all civil governments do that. Uh, 
None of them do it perfectly, but that's the job of the government. And hopefully this recent ruling will allow civil authorities throughout our country to do more to protect the most vulnerable, the most defenseless, and the innocent, and that is unborn children. I truly hope and I pray that this ruling, just in and of itself, will make a change that could save thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, and potentially millions of lives. And that is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we should be so thankful for that. But without being a pessimist and bringing down the joy of what that might bring, there are some things that we have to realize, even with the change that has taken place over this past weekend. First of all, we have to be realistic and realize permanence of this ruling is not guaranteed. What was just overturned was a half a century precedent. Now, when Roe v. Wade happened, it lasted 50 years. That's longer than some of us in this audience have been alive. It's a long time, but it came to an end. And the truth is, this ruling of the Supreme Court is going to be just as battled and combated as Roe was. And people will work tirelessly to try and overturn this ruling as well. And more than likely, at some point, whether in a year, whether in 50 years, whether in 100 years, this law, this ruling will probably change. We just have to understand that. Secondly, while there's misconceptions about what happened, abortion has not been banned in our country. In fact, one of the saddest things about this whole thing is Friday when this ruling happened, untold abortions were still carried out. And yesterday and today and tomorrow, abortions are still being practiced. There are still unborn losing their lives, and it will continue to practice. The states have the rights to set their own laws. There will be some states that put very tight restrictions, essentially banning abortion. There will be some states, as is expected, that will not only continue to protect that ability, but will further that because of this ruling. And will probably... Uh, go even further in what they allow. And that's tragic, but it's the reality. And also something we have to recognize, and we're going to talk about some of this this morning, is despite the laws, despite rulings, hearts are unchanged. Thursday night, before this ruling was overchanged, millions and millions of people in this country went to bed believing in and supporting abortion. And millions and millions of people went to bed that night against abortion. Friday morning came, the Supreme Court made their ruling, and I would suggest, I would, I would uh, hypothesize that not a single mind changed in our country because of what the Supreme Court said. Everybody who supported abortion Thursday still supports abortion. Everybody who was against abortion Thursday is still against abortion. Now, that doesn't mean it shouldn't have happened. It doesn't mean it wasn't a good ruling. But as Christians who are about more than just political laws, we have to recognize this is not sufficient for what our purpose is. Our purpose, as we're going to talk about some this morning, is transformed hearts and transformed minds and transformed lives. And Congress will never do that. The presidential office will never do that. The Supreme Court of our land will never do that. The only thing that is actually going to do that is the gospel. And that's where our focus really has to lie. And we can be thankful for this ruling. We can rejoice about that. We can uh, speak about it with others in the right ways. But we have to focus on the gospel. So I want to 
talk about this issue of abortion, I think, again, we probably are pretty much on the same page, but as it's going to continue to be a topic that we address and maybe speak with others about, how do we speak about it? How do we live in light of our beliefs? What does the Bible say about this issue? That's an important question. Does the Bible even address this issue? Is this a political issue? Is this a social issue? Or is this a spiritual issue? And I believe that while obviously it's a political and a social issue, first and foremost, it is a moral, spiritual issue. And that's why we should be concerned. Now, not nearly as concerned about the laws as we are about our behavior and our witness to the world and how we can influence the world, but the Bible has much to say that helps us understand this issue and what is right and what is wrong and what we should think about it. First of all, there is the principle, and this is a lesson in and of itself, but we're going to keep this part brief, but the Bible teaches very clearly that life is valuable. I should say human life is extremely valuable. That doesn't mean that plant life and animal life should just be abused and neglected and have no meaning whatsoever. They are part of God's creation. But when God created the world and all of its beauty and all of its wonder, he gave special meaning, special significance, and special value to human life. And that extends to all humanity, man and woman, young and old, whatever, whatever race, ethnicity, education background, economic status, whatever it is, all human life has tremendous value and should not be taken away. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. This is in the creation account. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image and the image of God he created in male and female, he created them. Of all creation, and this is why human life is so valuable, extremely valuable, more valuable than the rest of creation, because the plant life and animal life and the other matter throughout the universe, none of it was created in the image of God. All of it was created by God. But none of it was created in the image of God, except for you and me and every human being that has ever existed. God gave special significant value to humanity. And so life is valuable. That is the underlying principle of the whole discussion of abortion. Truth is life valuable. And the thing is, everybody, at least at surface level, agrees with that. That's why there's so much of the debate about when does life begin. We'll talk about that in a little while. But people have that debate because they realize that once you say life is not valuable, we've gone down a dark road that even our country doesn't want to go down. Life is valuable. As Christians, we should embrace that more than anybody. And also as Christians, we should help the world see why life is valuable. See, that's where the world gets things so wrong. Why is life valuable? Because we've been created by God in the image of God. Because life is valuable, the Bible also makes it extremely clear that murder, that is the intentional taking of another life, is sinful. The first sin that we read about outside of the Garden of Eden, we've got creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we've got the fall and the sin in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and then we fast forward to Adam and Eve's children in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, and what's the first sin that we read about? It's murder. Within one generation... Sin, this is why the sin in the garden is so important. I think, what's the big deal about taking a piece of forbidden fruit? 
Look at what it does within just one generation. It goes all the way to the extent of reversing God's created order. That's what murder is. God gives life. He is the author of life. Murder is a human being, part of God's creation, willfully and purposefully destroying the most valuable part of God's creation. It is the antithesis. It is the exact opposite of the nature of God and his creative life-giving purpose. And so we see from the example of Cain and Abel and what we learn there, it's wrong. As we get to the law of Moses, the sixth commandment in that list of ten commandments was thou shalt not murder. There's a lot more in the old law and the Old Testament law. We're not under the Old Testament law, but I'm showing the biblical principle here. Murder was wrong under the law of Moses. As you read through the rest of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, You'll find a lot of other things about murder and manslaughter uh, and violence. You see that murder was not tolerated. Jesus spoke about this and even restricted and showed how important it is to be peaceful and nonviolent by taking this even a step further. When he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is not softening the old law of Moses. He's even show, he's showing true value of life goes beyond just not killing people. And that's an important lesson. We have to learn that. And in this whole abortion discussion, that's something we have to recognize. That valuing life does not stop because that we don't value life just because we say we don't believe in abortion or that we believe that abortion is wrong. If we believe that abortion is wrong, but then we don't have any care or concern for the well-being of people as they live, that's not a godly value of life. And Jesus teaches that. But at the base, at the most foundational level, you cannot value life when you take life away, at whatever age a person may be. And at the end of the Bible, we see this stark warning for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. From literally the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the message is clear. Life is valuable, and people that don't value life and take life are unrepentant of that. They are sinful, they are guilty, and again, if they do not repent of that, they will be lost forever. We also see in the Bible that harming children is particularly angering to God. Child, child sacrifice was noted as a special abomination. God hated idolatry. And there are a lot of laws in the Old Testament warning against idolatry. There's a lot of verses in the New Testament that warn against idolatry. But listen to just a couple of these. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. He's speaking about the way that the Canaanites worshipped. War Moses is warning the Israelites as they're getting ready to go in and conquer the promised land. He says, when you see the way and you see the nations around you, you don't worship God the way they worship their gods. How did they worship their gods? For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. And now, that's a lot of things. There were a lot of things the Canaanites did that God hated. 
Now, God is love. We just sang a song about the love of God. But love and hate are not mutually exclusive. Because God, who is love, hates some things. And there were ways that the Canaanites worshipped that he despised, found despicable, abominable, and he hated. And notice this, of those things, it says they even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. That is emphasizing there's a lot of very wicked things the Canaanites do that God hates. Even as if this is something that it's beyond the mind of Moses and the Israelites. They even sacrificed their children. This verse is showing that that idea of sacrificing children was unthinkable. In fact, that's exactly what God says later in Deuteronomy chapter 18 through 20 when he says, There shall not be found any among you who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or sorcerer, charmer, medium or necromancer who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. There's other passages where God speaks about this idea they shall not offer their sons for this did not even enter the mind of God made special note. God hated violence and murder in these cultures and immorality, but he made special note of how wicked it is when people hurt children. Jesus has a stark warning in Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 through 6. When the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest or will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus teaches them a powerful lesson by looking somewhere and finding a, a child. We don't know how old the child was, but he beckons that child over and he puts this child in the midst and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a high compliment to children that Jesus says this. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now listen to this. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus could make some pretty pointed comments when he needed to and wanted to. It could even be pretty graphic. Now, some interpret this passage, and I don't think this is wrong. They think that Jesus is using the child, and when he says, one of these little ones who believes in me, he's now using this as a spiritual metaphor, referring to his disciples and believers as little ones. And I don't think that's incorrect. But I think it still is directly tied to the idea of harming children. And Jesus says, when you do something, and there's nothing more harmful than causing someone to not believe in Jesus. Jesus says, when you harm one of these little ones in this way, how bad is that? The creator of the universe says it'd be, rather, it'd be better for you to go tie your neck to a large stone and throw yourself into the ocean. That's not a very nice thing to say. That's not a very kind thing to say. Jesus said it. That's what Jesus, the creator, the author of life, thinks about endangering and harming children. Also, we see the example of the slaughter in Bethlehem, I think teaches us God's view 
of innocent children being murdered. We know the story there. Jesus is born. The wise men come. Herod's terrified. And so Herod tries to trick these wise men, but they learn to go from a vision to not go back to Herod. And when he realizes he's been outsmarted, Herod just comes up with plan B. He says, all right, if this child born the king of the Jews is down in Bethlehem, then I'll just send my soldiers down there. And to be safe, I'm going to kill all of the male children in Bethlehem that are under two years of age. Even that's too far for our country right now. Sad thing is, that may be a debate that happens in our lifetimes of whether that's permissible or not in parts of this country. But now, the point I want to make here is this. You realize, you know how many places Herod's slaughter of infant children in Bethlehem is recorded historically? One place. The Bible. Bethlehem was not a big place. There were probably, if it's limited to boys under the age of two, there may have been a couple dozen. Probably not much more than that. Fifty, maybe. Probably not a lot more than that. Maybe far fewer than that. In the grand scheme of world politics, global atrocities, even in comparison with other things Herod did, from a worldly perspective, this really wasn't the worst of them. What did God say about it? God inspired Matthew to quote from Jeremiah. And the quotation that a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. That comes from a passage in Jeremiah where he is in Ramah and he is watching the, the Jews be carried off to captivity. Their nation is decimated. They have been almost destroyed as a people. There are many mothers of the poor that are left behind that are wailing for the loss of their sons and the enslavement of their people. God's entire chosen nation has been carried away. And God feels just as angry and brokenhearted about just a few children in the backwater town of Bethlehem as he did about the entire nation of Israel being enslaved and captivated. Children have value in the sight of God. Oh, absolutely they do. And they should have value in our sight as well. Now, someone may bring up the question, they may say, well, what about unborn children? I mean, so far what we've talked about is life and children that are outside the womb. What about unborn children? Well, in the law of Moses, there's actually a law concerning unborn children. In Exodus 21, Verse 22 through 25, we read that when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. Notice that. Now, there's some things in this passage that are kind of difficult to interpret. There's some translation issues I've read about and just what it means. But here's the first basic principle. When two men are fighting and scuffling, which they shouldn't have been doing, but because of that scuffle, they end up by accident hurting a pregnant woman. And it causes her to give birth, even if there's no harm. There's no problem. A lot of the law of Moses is based upon you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Even when there's no harm to the mother or child, there's a punishment for these men. That should tell you how important it is. Now it goes on further. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. By the way, our country does 
not quite this much, but it's the same type of laws. If you get in a vehicle intoxicated and you cause a wreck and you injure or you kill the unborn child of an expectant mother, you can be held accountable for manslaughter or murder of that child. Ironically, even if she were perhaps on her way to abort that child. Our law recognizes life in the womb at certain points. And the law of Moses, which, is, which was far greater, the law of Moses, which was a divine law, recognizes life and value and personhood in the womb. We also find some passages that speak about an abominable practice that took place in some places, and that is... Um, and we read about this in 2 Kings 8, verse 12 is 1. Haziel, which Elisha goes to to tell him he will become the next king of Syria. But as Elisha speaking to him, he begins weeping. And Haziel says, why does my Lord weep? And Elisha answers, because I know the evil that you will do to this people Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. That's called evil. Amos 1 verse 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not provoke the punishment because they have ripped open the pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border, killing pregnant women and thus the children that they carried within them was an egregious error and sin and wickedness in the life of God, in the eyes of God. And it still is. Now, I mentioned this question earlier because, again, most times people will agree life is valuable. But when does life start? When is someone actually living? Now, I was unaware of this argument until actually this weekend. But as I read, I found it's a fairly prevalent argument. This is predominantly amongst people who proclaim to be Christian that also support abortion. Last Sunday, we talked about the issue, the moral issue of homosexuality. The idea that there are Christians that try and defend that, or people that claim to be Christians that try and defend that practice from Scripture. That's true of every type of sin. That's true of abortion. There are many people in our country that claim to be Christian, and yet they support the practice of abortion. Now, if you're going to do that, you have to find a way. If you want any semblance of actually trying to be a Christian, you have to try and find some method of authority from the Bible. And one of the ways that people do this is they teach that life actually doesn't start until the first breath. Where they get this is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We've uh, read Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So here's the argument. God forms a body. In fact, as he's forming a body from the dust and the molecules and the atoms, it is just a body. It's just a vessel. And until God breathes in life, and until there is breath in the nostrils, so this is beginning to take this incredibly literally, that's when man becomes a living creature. And so then by that, somehow we make the jump, if we follow this argument, to a fetus, as is often called, is simply a clump of cells. As it's developing from day one to day 30 to third trimester, it is just a vessel. It's like that dusty body the moment before God breathed in life. It hasn't ever actually taken a breath. 
I mean, it's getting oxygen, but it hasn't breathed. And not until it comes out the birth canal, not until it is actually in the world and it takes its first breath, that is the moment where God places the breath of life into that vessel and it becomes a living being. And thus, if that's the case, then any time before that, if you end it, you're not ending a life, you're just destroying a vessel. That's the argument. Now, is that right? Absolutely not. First of all, Adam and Eve are unique as the first man and woman created. Adam did not breathe the first breath of life the way any other human being has. He wasn't formed in a womb, and the Bible never says that he was. He was not created through a biological process. Adam was created through a supernatural process. Both his physical and spiritual being was created supernaturally by God. He is the only man that has ever been created and given life that way. If you doubt that, just think about woman. How was Eve created? The Bible tells us that a deep sleep fell on Adam and that God took a rib out of Adam and fashioned that into woman, a woman, Eve. Now, are all women created from the ribs of men? Absolutely not. That is ludicrous. She is unique, Eve is, and so is Adam. And to say that that becomes the model of when God gives life is simply illogical, especially when we compare it with the rest of scriptures because scripture in other places recognizes personhood even in the womb. Psalm chapter 22 verse 10. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Not from the first breath outside the womb but from the womb. God claims to be the God of the living. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. And yes, I know, by the way, that these psalms are poetic language, but they teach a principal truth that even in the womb, God recognizes life and being. Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. There it is. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And that's not talking about my vessel. It says you knitted me, my personhood, my being, my existence. It was not knitted together outside the womb. It was knitted together in the womb. This is where we get the title, and we'll come back to this at the end. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Where? Long, long before a child takes his first breath or her first breath outside of the womb, even before that baby is recognizable as a human being, they have been fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Jeremiah 1 verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God, this is a, a mysterious thing. We can't explain all of this. God has ordained a biological process by which children are by which reproduction happens and children are created and born. But there is also something spiritual and supernatural here that we don't see, don't know, don't understand. And that is that in conjunction with the biological laws that God has created, God also creates a spiritual being. And that clearly happens 
before the first birth, at least according to Scripture. In fact, another case study of this is Luke chapter 1. So Luke chapter 1, we've read about, you will have read about John the Baptist, um, his parents learning that they will conceive and have a child even though they're old and past childbearing years. We read about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, turns out and announcing Jesus's uh, birth and that she will be the virgin mother of Jesus. And then we read that in verse 41, Elizabeth heard the greeting, or let me back up, Mary goes to Elizabeth. Elizabeth and Mary are somehow related. And so Mary goes off to meet Elizabeth. And there's no real time frame difference here. This is very quickly. And when you read that passage, Mary, Elizabeth has probably been pregnant about six months longer than Mary. And so when Mary comes to Elizabeth, and what we read in Luke 41, we can say that Mary is somewhere in her first trimester of pregnancy. And Elizabeth is somewhere in her third trimester of pregnancy. Now, the reason I bring that up is because that's a big part. Now, some people say, well, abortion's not okay in the third trimester. But the second trimester, maybe. First trimester, absolutely. Yeah, that's okay. We, you know, they aren't very developed in the first trimester. But listen to this. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. This is John. He's somewhere in the third, she's in the third trimester of her pregnancy. This is a fetus, this is a clump of cells that's not even nine months old, and yet somehow is able to leap for joy in the womb of Elizabeth when his mother, who is carrying him in her womb, comes in close proximity to Mary and the baby who she is carrying. That's personal. That's life in the womb of Elizabeth. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Again, that first trimester fruit, that weeks old fruit in the womb of Mary, blessed is that. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. By the way, what Elizabeth is stating here is that this baby in the first trimester of its existence in the womb of Mary is the Lord. Not in the second trimester, not in the third trimester, not when he takes the first breath of life, not when he's independent of having to rely upon his parents for physical life. Already, the Lord is present. Why? Because he's alive. And whether people want to argue about the moment of conception or the day after conception or all of those things. What we see in the scripture is that at the very earliest of times, fruit of the womb is life. It's a person. It's a being that has already been given personhood by God the Creator. And we must respect that. So what does all this that we've talked about mean? Well, first of all, 
means that humans are created in God's image, as we've said, and thus have value. That means that to commit murder is to act directly against God's creative order. I hope we've established that a preborn baby is still a baby. It's still a human being. God's word recognizes its personhood and humanity. And therefore, the only conclusion we can come to is that abortion intentionally ends the life of a human being that has created, been created in the image of God. And the biblical word for that is murder. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm trying to state what the Bible states. The intentional taking of a life is murder. And that is what abortion is. It's tragic. Now, I know we're close to out of time, but I do want to mention a couple of questions. There's some common issues that people ask. This is brought up all the time whenever this topic is debated. And we need to be ready to answer these questions. I think it's fair for us to have to answer these questions. One of the most prominent arguments is what about cases of rape and incest? And I'm, This is not a comfortable topic. I don't like talking about this topic. This is a tragic topic. This happens. And the way the argument is, is okay, uh, uh, the government bans abortion. That means that if a woman is raped, and as a result of that rape, she uh, becomes pregnant, maybe even worse, is raped in a case of incest, and becomes pregnant. Isn't that cruel? Isn't that unfair to make that woman, to force that woman to bear that child? This wasn't a mistake on her part. This wasn't an immoral choice on her part. Why should she have the burden of bearing a child? Well, first of all, I want to make the point, this is a distraction in the argument. There is, an in, there is a, a recent study done by the Guttmacher Institute, which if I remember correctly is a pretty liberal uh, place, and they surveyed women and why they had abortions. These are the reasons that were given. By far, the two most common reasons, of course you could choose more than one, having a baby would dramatically change my life, 74%. Three-fourths of women that have abortions have them because the baby will dramatically change their life. Yes, you know, that's true. A baby is going to dramatically change your life. Everyone here who has children knows that. We don't deny that. But hopefully everyone here who has experienced that realizes that is absolutely a blessing and not a reason to end the life of a child. When people argue in our country that abortion is necessary because of rape and incest, they are either lying or they are willfully ignorant because it's not even a main reason why abortion is taking place in our country. By far, the main reason is convenience. And if there's one place in this lesson that I can have to try to keep my cool, it's that. It's child sacrifice. It's the idolatry of wealth and pleasure and everything else in this world and the willingness to end the life of a child to keep that up. And I am convinced that it's every bit as abominable to God as burning sons and daughters to Molech. That's the number one reason children are aborted in our country. Now, right next to that is can't afford a baby right now. 
I would ask, what's, what's the other place in our country, in our society, where when we can't afford something, the solution is murder? There is no other place. About half say, I don't want to be a single mother. Relationship problems. There's some issues there. There are men that are not being men. Men that will try and enjoy a sexual relationship with a woman, probably outside of marriage, and then when responsibility comes, they leave. That's disgusting, and it's an abdication of a man's given role. And I do feel for women that are put in that situation, but it's not a reason to end the life of a child. Some, over a third, have said, I've completed my childbearing. I assume that's women, married or unmarried, who have had children, and they don't want any more children. Maybe they're a bit older. And so when an unplanned pregnancy comes along, maybe not even because of immorality or because of uh, rape or anything like that, just an unplanned pregnancy later in life, they don't want it. And so they ended. As for rape and abortion, 1% of women claimed that's why they were having an abortion. 1%. Now, I don't write off that 1%. My heart breaks for that 1%. But it clearly is not a driving force. And less than half of a percent claimed incest. The reason abortion is happening in our country is convenience. So don't be distracted by that. But secondly, and this is more important, because there are women that are raped and assaulted and become pregnant because of that. And abortion is still not justified because you do not overcome sin it's sin. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, it said, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. When a man rapes a woman, a disgusting, an egregious, a vile, wicked thing has occurred. I, I can't express that in strong enough terms. But the baby that might result from that sinful, despicable action is not responsible for that wickedness. And that baby is not vile, wicked, or sinful. And to abort that baby is tantamount to executing the child for the sins of the father. Now, I want to be also clear on this point. Women in that circumstance, they need special love, they need support, they need care, they need mercy, they need it from their family, they need it from the church. Be they young, be they single, be they married, they are going to be facing tremendous pain and heartache because of what's happened to them. And that's added to the responsibility of an unexpected motherhood. And those women need to be supported, loved, and served, and cared for in every possible way by their church family. And while we are right to say that situations like rape and incest do not excuse abortion, let us also not forget to care for and help and serve those that may be in that painful situation. This is another one I've heard, especially just this weekend. I hear people ask, well, what about you know social issues? One person I read or heard said, you know, the foster system's overloaded. I looked that up. On any given day, there's roughly 424,000 children in the American foster care system. Now imagine if we added, obviously, aborted babies tend to be unwanted babies. 
So you can assume a big portion of them are going to probably fall into the system. The system's already overloaded. There's already too many kids in foster care. What, what happens if we don't have abortions? Well, let me ask this. When the hospitals get full, do we start killing sick people? What about the nursing homes? When the nursing homes get full, is it time to start killing off the old people? What about when recession hits? What about when unemployment skyrockets and the welfare systems are taxed? Should we just start killing disabled people? No. We know that. Just because there's other problems in our society doesn't justify more problems and worse problems. Where did the logic come from that because this isn't right, we should kill innocent people? It makes no sense in any other realm of life, and it makes no sense when it comes to the unborn. Now, the epidemic of absentee parents and abusive and criminal parents, or simply parents that don't want their children, it's staggering and it's tragic in this country. I agree with that. But you know what the answer to that problem is? It isn't to kill babies. It's to work to fix those issues. And that's why the gospel is important. Because the gospel doesn't just teach you to not kill an unborn innocent child. The gospel teaches you as a man to be a man. The gospel teaches you as a parent to be a provider and a lover and a caregiver. The Bible teaches you as an individual to be pure and whole and moral. If the, if the Bible was followed, we wouldn't just do away with the abortion issue. We would do away with all of the issues that lead to abortion. That's the power of the gospel. And also, sometimes I hear people say, well, to be a pro-life, you must also support X, Y, Z, fill it in. Universal health care, all the political issues that I have no desire to get into and discuss. And you know what? Maybe... Maybe those are things that need to be talked about politically with, with, amongst people. That's fine. Like I said, we do need to care for those that are in need. We do need to care for those who have unplanned uh, pregnancies. And Christians should not just want a child to live, as I've already said, but they should want that child to be cared for, loved, provided for throughout their life. And so we should do whatever we can, wherever we can, to help that take place. How we can help with that may vary situation to situation, but yes, we should want to help children, but our society gets the cart ahead of the horse. They say, well, you have to support this and provide this and do this. How are we ever going to agree on those things when we can't even agree that we shouldn't kill a baby? I mean, that's the most foundational part. Should we kill someone or not? That should be something we can come to an answer easily. And when we get to that answer, we agree on that. And yeah, let's tackle those other things. So I just say that. Don't let someone make you think that because you don't have all the answers for all the other problems in our country, that you can't stand against the practice of abortion. You can. But what's the answer to all of this? To this situation, to this debate, to this problem? Well, the answer is simply the gospel. Again, as I've already said, Laws aren't changing hearts. The Supreme Court's not changing hearts. Everyone who supported abortion before still does. Evil men will continue to commit rape. Men and women will continue to choose lifestyles that are immoral. 
that end up in unplanned and unwanted pregnancies, all those things are still going to happen. So what's the answer? It is the gospel. It is the gospel and spoken word. Now, as we preach the gospel and share the gospel, we need to do so in gentleness and love, but we also need to share the truth. 2 Timothy 2 verse 24 tells us not to be quarrelsome, but kind, to patiently endure evil, to correct with gentleness so that God can grant repentance. This is important. This is where sometimes I just have to turn off the computer. I have to turn off the TV. I have to be careful, especially in this day where you can type out some uh, mad response very quickly when you see somebody spewing nonsense. Be gentle, be kind, be loving. Stand for the truth, teach the truth, but do so with the Lord's heart. But also, remember, this is the most powerful way to enact change. Not politicians, not laws, not Supreme Courts, the gospel. Romans 12, verse 1, As I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. When someone believes that and follows that, it brings about great change. One of the great slogans of the abortion movement is, My body, my choice. Not when you're a Christian. Your body becomes a living sacrifice for God. So all this identity and autonomy and all of those questions and statements really have no validity when we're a Christian. Now, someone who's not a Christian isn't going to agree with that. But when they hear the gospel and they experience the power of Christ's salvation, when they obey the gospel and become Christ-like and they give their allegiance to him and they follow him, they're not going to make the my body, my choice argument. They're going to follow Christ. Romans says, transformed by the renewal of your mind. Again, laws and Supreme Court rulings are not renewing minds. The gospel and. And the gospel, of course, has more power than just stopping abortion. It doesn't just cause people to choose life over abortion, as I've kind of alluded to. It has the power to change life, to change lives and the causes of abortion. When the gospel transforms a man, he will not assault and rape a woman and somehow therein cause an unplanned pregnancy. When the gospel transforms men and women, they won't choose fornication and immorality that leads to unplanned pregnancies. When the gospel transforms a woman and a man, they will value children as blessings, even when perhaps long after they had planned on stop, to stop having children, an unexpected pregnancy occurs. When people are transformed by the gospel, all the issues that even lead up to abortion are solved. We can't just teach the gospel. We must also live the gospel. Jonathan gave us a great lesson this past Wednesday, and I've talked long enough, so I'm not going to reteach it. But we are to be the salt of the earth. There is a terrible decay in our society. We should be doing everything we can to be the preservative force against that decay. Salt of the earth. We are to be a light in the darkness. And I want to apply that in a certain way. For a woman that is facing an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy, for whatever reason, she's been a victim, she's made a mistake and an immoral choice, for any woman in that situation, and any man, by the way, I know men get, you know, they get tossed out of this discussion, but there's men who are involved in some of those mistakes 
And the burden of becoming a father is on them, so they have a stake in this whole abortion argument. An individual placed in that situation, again, by themselves or by victimhood, this world can be a very dark, dark place. Challenges, fears, the advice, the things that are available, it is a dark, dark place. So how great would it be if our light pierced that darkness to bring the hope and peace of Jesus' gospel and love to those individuals? Our words and our lives should be lights on a hill, beacons to those who are in need. What if our examples truly showed others forgiveness is real and it's available, that children are a blessing, not a burden, that we value life so much that we are willing to give and serve in order to save and preserve and support life. What if the world saw that in us? What could change? Well, I want to finish with this thought. Psalm chapter 127, or Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. This is my interpretation. This is my thought about this. I believe that's an unconditional statement. I believe that children are a blessing and that they are a gift from God. The world speaks about children as consequences. And in the most technical sense, I suppose they are. They result because of certain actions. But children are not just consequences and they are not burdens. They are blessings and they are gifts. Do children require work? Absolutely. Hard work, most definitely. Do they require sacrifice? You better believe it. But for all who are willing to work and sacrifice for the children that God gives them, I believe that they will find the blessings of those children will far outweigh any burdens and any sacrifices. You know, childbearing is an absolutely amazing thing, especially in this context. I know it's framed in the idea of, you know, rape and incest and all these problems. The child in that situation is viewed as, you know, just one more burden. I want you to look at the situation of unplanned pregnancies this way. Even in issues, even in circumstances brought about by evil, even in the great, even in the terrible situation of a woman being the victim of rape, God can bless. And one of the ways he does that is with a child. A child is not a punishment. That child is not a manifestation of evil. That child is a gift from God. Even when a man and a woman behave immorally and don't follow God's pattern of morality and purity, and the result of that is a child, Despite their rejection of God's plan, God has provided the blessing of a child. It's a gift. Child is always a gift. It is always a blessing. That child that is the result of rape or immorality or accident is just as much a being that is created in the image of God as any other child. 
You go back to our title in the psalmist that we read earlier. That child is just as fearfully and wonderfully made as any other human being in the world. And that wonderful creation must be protected and cherished and loved. That child may not be wanted by its biological mother or its biological father. But it is wanted and it is loved by God and should be by us as well. Abortion is one of the most direct refusals of God's will and one of the most vile rejections of his love and his blessings that exist today. And so if we follow Christ, may we ever and always stand against this practice. May we speak the truth in love, share the gospel to change hearts, and live Christ-like lives that serve others and their needs so that we may protect and honor life and the blessings that God bestows upon us and upon this world. Well, I hope that that study helps you. I hope that it gives you things to think about in this climate and in our society. I hope it encourages you to stand for the truth in a right and a Christ-like way. As we bring that study to a close, we have an opportunity to extend the gospel. God, of course, values life, and he values eternal life. And so you may be here today and at a guilty distance from God, and God wants to change that situation more than anything. He wants you to be his child, to be redeemed of your sins, to be forgiven, so that you can enjoy life eternal with him. If you're here and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you need to repent of your sins, you need to confess Jesus is the Son of God, and you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you're ready to do that, we would be thrilled to help you with that today so that you can be added by the Lord to His church. Or if you're a Christian and you desire the prayers of the church, whatever it may be, we are here with you, we are here to help you, we are here to pray with you, and that would be an honor for us to do that, whatever the case may be. So if there be one in need, please come while we stand and while we sing.